At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, my friends. It's Isabella here, and I am wanted to ask you. What do you, did you ever have a chance to speak with Ukrainian editor or Atlantic Council? Did you ever had an opportunity also to read and see what's going on in Ukraine, specifically in the recent weeks? Do you understand implications of events that are occurring and how is this affecting us over a year when the war started and where we're at? But also from the leadership perspective, how is this affecting us on individual and obviously global level? I have a chance and opportunity to introduce you to a great guest of mine here, Peter Dickinson, who is joining us from Kiev, from Ukraine. And he is not Ukrainian, but his story is incredible. And I cannot wait for him to share how he ended up in Ukraine and work that he does. And he does extremely well. Peter, how are you? Hi, nice to join you. Um, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm so glad you were able to, wel uh, to welcome you to On Legacy Leader Show and, and have this episode with you where we can really deep dive and depict a little bit. We've seen sporadic news and uh, sound bites, but we don't really get a good sense of, of, at least here in the United States, um, because of how is media portraying the events that are occurring, right? And there's a lot going on on a larger global scale regardless. Um, and it's very important to have these conversations. So uh, first of all, um, you're in Kiev and how is the situation right now, just from the moment that, you, that we're speaking today? Well, where I am, I, I'm in the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, um, and we are a long way from the fighting here. So uh, we really are impacted mostly in a day-to-day -day sense by the, the air raids. Um, most nights, Russia launches air raids at, at Kiev and other Ukrainian cities. Uh, so we'll get uh, we'll get a, a message on our phones. Everybody has the, the app downloaded, so you have a message on your phone that there are uh, rockets on their way, missiles on their way, perhaps suicide drones on their way, uh, or sometimes they will be informed that simply Russia has put its its its, its bombers into the air. So we should expect uh, we should expect um, a bombardment. Uh, and at that point, then everybody is, is obliged to, well, some people will do nothing, just ignore it. Most people will seek to take some sort of shelter. So uh, uh, in my house, that means getting my children, my wife and children, and, and taking cover in our, in our safe space we have downstairs, which is a, a sort of makeshift bomb shelter area. Uh, others will have to leave their apartments in Kiev and go to a bomb shelter, go on the ground somewhere, go to perhaps a metro station or a, lo a, a, a local bomb shelter. So. Um, it's very disruptive uh, to your day-to-day -day life. It means that you often don't get much sleep. Uh, but of course, the real fighting is going on in the south and east, uh, where we have um, very, very, uh, very, very serious uh, conflict under underway uh, between what is essentially uh, you know, two very large armies 
head to head on a front line, which is around a thousand kilometers. Uh, now fighting is taking place every day at different points along that front line. Hundreds of people are dying each day on both sides. Um, and of course, in the recent days, we have the additional uh, very traumatic experience of the destruction of the dam in southern Ukraine, which is a major hydroelectric power plant and dam, which was destroyed. Uh, all the evidence indicates by Russian by Russian by Russian forces was it was blown up from the inside um, and has flooded a very large area. So uh, we have a humanitarian and ecological catastrophe unfolding in the south of Ukraine in parallel to the war itself. So uh, very tough times, uh, very traumatic for the people of Ukraine. Um, we all feel it here in Kiev, but uh, you know I, I, we're a long way away from the actual fighting. So really, for us, it's a, a sort of second-hand trauma to a, to a to a significant degree. But even so, uh, I think everybody here is is uh, is very very tired, is very very stressed, is very very worn out by the the horrors that we've witnessed over the past sixteen months. Thank you for giving us that overview and perspective, uh, because a lot of times people don't understand just because it's not necessarily portrayed in the media, that doesn't mean that it's not happening on a daily basis and that is your reality. And someone who has been in war zone and understand that, uh, it's very much so, as you mentioned, taxing on people's emotions and sleep and concentration and focus and energy and overall well-being, right? And then at the same time, responsibilities kick in. You mentioned you have wife and children with you, regardless how um, good opportunity to protect them it's there, it's still always the risks associated, aren't they? Yes, uh, it is It is an additional challenge when you have uh, dependents uh, and family. And in my family, uh, we, we actually left Ukraine at the beginning of the war and we spent around half a year living in, inside the EU. Um, but we, we missed home terribly and, and we made a decision as a family to return. Um, my work is actually quite flexible, so we do have the, the, the advantage over many people. We could, we could live elsewhere, but for now, even, it, may, it probably sounds remarkable and perhaps perhaps a little bit crazy but uh, all things considered with all the pluses and minuses we still feel it's we'd, we'd rather be here um, we'd rather be at home there's no place like home and uh, when we were away we missed it terribly we missed our we missed our home we missed our our friends our family our daily life our familiar surroundings so um, even though it's very challenging and uh, and stressful uh, we do on balance we prefer to be here at the moment but um, who knows how things will develop uh, a lot of people you know, very very many you know millions of people have left Ukraine since the war began millions have come home but a lot still remain abroad uh, they've been lucky to have received a very very generous welcome from uh, various countries in the EU there's a large large refugee communities in Poland in the Czech Republic which is where we were staying uh, in Germany uh, in the Baltic states, uh, Scandinavia, France, Britain. So um, these people now have spent the last more than a year abroad. And, and the question is, you know, if they don't come back soon, will they come back at all? There's a good chance now that Ukraine could well essentially lose those people, even if they're able to win the war in the, in the coming months, they still may lose those people. Mm. That is heartbreaking, right? Because things are obviously, as you mentioned, um, stretching out now to 16, 17, 18 months, and 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 it's just uh, a time to enjoy. It's a summer. It's supposed to be 
um, completely different uh, living and working situation for so many. Fortunately, they're over time adopted, but also struggles are real. And I'm curious if you don't mind sharing, how do you see people? I mean, I see so much strength and resilience there, but specifically children, right? How you see, how you protect and, 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 and how do you see implications of the war on, on youth and children? Well, it depends. I mean, it depends on their experience of the war. And of course, we cannot shelter children entirely from it. Uh, I think that the children, that certainly my own children and, and the children that you know, and my extended family and, and people I come into contact with, they're very well informed. You know, children these days, they spend their lives on their phones and, and they have access to social media and all the news. So they are extremely well informed about what's going on. Um, that can be good in a sense. It can also be bad because, of course, they often see things that you would rather they didn't see, um, especially in a war context. They see things that are traumatic, that are distressing, that are uh, very, very difficult for a child to, to, to um, cope with, frankly. You know, the, the atrocities that we, see, that we hear about and see, um, the, the, the war crimes and so forth. So even the children who have not come into contact with those things personally, are connected to them, are affected by them, are, are impacted by them. And I think we're only gonna really know the full impact in the years to come, but it's gonna be a major issue for Ukraine. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a nation that's been put through incredible trauma. Uh, the crimes that have been committed by the Russian invasion force, wherever they've been in terms of occupation, uh, are frankly almost unbelievable, almost staggering. Uh, we're talking about mass murder, uh, we're talking about torture, sexual violence, um, de deportations on a massive scale, children being taken from their families and deported, uh, forced to, to adopt Russian nationality. Uh, it's, it's incredible to imagine that this is even possible and the children are aware of this, they see this. So uh, we're gonna have a generation of children coming through who are traumatized, that's, that's inevitable. Um, and that also applies to children who've left Ukraine those who are far away, because again, they live with the war to a significant degree wherever they are. Um, that's not going to go away, unfortunately. So it's going to be a big challenge going forward. You know, the, mental, the mental health issues that we're going to see, the, the trauma, uh, the kind of um, therapy that we're going to need is going to, going to be significant. Mm. Thank you for also highlighting that because a lot of times uh, I call those invisible wounds, right? Because maybe child or adult get not physically wounded, but it doesn't mean that those emotional wounds and implications of seeing and being in those environments, uh, it's not real and does not exist. And also for society in general to really extend and not much more opportunities to support, but also to understand that different realities are here and, and those implications are truly real. Peter, you mentioned something also uh, very profound here, obviously with damage and, and fights that are happening in Southwest side. Um, and do you mind sharing of the dam? Obviously, it's it's just so many implications there. The whole village is flooded. People are scrambling. We're seeing images trying so hard to save wild. I mean, their animals, their dogs, but also everybody's affected, right? From people, uh, their, their stock, but also wild animals as well. Um, so with that in mind, what do you want to really world to know? I mean, because we're seeing a lot of um, 
in some sense of crisis and urgency. And then we also see it's like, oh, we don't have to worry about it, that nuclear power does will not have a water to cool off or we it's not imminent danger. We're seeing so many polar opposite perspectives. And obviously you are able to um, really gain insight. And do you mind sharing what do we really need to know? What do we need to from global level understand at this moment and what action needs to be taken? Well, I think the most important issue here is, is responsibility for this catastrophe. This is not a disaster, this is a crime. Uh, and people need to be very clear about that. What we've seen in the media in the last few days has been a very, uh, a very, um, I would say a weak response of basically been a lot of headlines saying Russia and Ukraine blame each other. Russia and Ukraine accuse each other. Russia and Ukraine say each other is responsible. Uh, and then the reporters from you know, be it the BBC or the New York Times or the Washington Post or any of the major media have basically put across this idea that, well, Ukraine says this, but Russia says the opposite, as if these two things are equal somehow and we cannot make any decision. Um, now, if you, if you analyse what we actually do know and don't know about what happened, uh, this dam that was destroyed was built in the 1950s in the Cold War to withstand a nuclear attack. It was built to withstand the most powerful explosive force that we could possibly imagine. It was an extremely sturdy structure. Uh, there is almost no way that it could have been destroyed externally by fire, which is, which is basically what the Russian version of the story is. Russia has said that Ukraine destroyed it with artillery fire or perhaps missile fire. Um, this is simply physically not possible. It could not happen. The structure is too powerful. It can only have been destroyed by explosion with a very large volume of explosives within the dam structure. Uh, even if you're not an expert on this, and frankly, I'm not an expert, all you need to do is look at pictures of this structure before. It was an extremely solid in reinforced concrete structure. So um, Russia controlled the dam. They held this dam. They controlled it for almost a year uh, they've been talking about mining it repeatedly and then clearly they did mine it and clearly they did explode it. Now this is a fair, it's fairly obvious and it, 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 there was no, there was a lot of horror in Ukraine but there was no surprise in Ukraine when this happened. We knew what had happened because we'd been waiting for them to do this. What was surprising was to see the international media say, oh well, who knows, we don't know, we'll never know what happened. It's obvious what happened but for some reason uh, the international media seems to prioritise balance over truth. Now the priority should be truth, but they prioritize balance. And you cannot have balance when you're dealing with a country like Russia that routinely and systematically lies. That is what Russia does. The, you know, we, we've seen this when Russia took Crimea and said, it's not our soldiers, it was their soldiers. They went into East Ukraine and said, it's not our soldiers. We now know it was their soldiers. They've admitted it. They shot down the airliner in 2014 and said, it wasn't us. We now know it was them. They said, we're not going to invade Ukraine. They did invade Ukraine. Yeah, we could go on and on. This is what Russia does. So you can't legitimately say, well, our policy is balanced. Our policy is putting across objectively what both sides say. If you know that one of the sides lies as a matter of routine, as a matter of policy, um, that is what Russia does. Now, this is not just about pointing a finger at Russia and saying Russia is to blame. This is about raising an alarm and saying, look, the world needs to be aware this this country has just committed a very serious war crime and if, if it's capable of doing that and if it's not punished for that it will do more it will do worse it will go further we've seen that again and again again 
They took Crimea, nothing happened. They went to East Ukraine, nothing happened. They came to Ukraine. If nothing happens again, then we will see a nuclear incident. We will see an attack on a nuclear power plant and they will say, it wasn't us, it was Ukraine. And then the Washington Post will say, who knows, we don't know who it was. That's not gonna help. We need to be specific here. We need to say this was Russia that did this. And we will not accept that as an international community. There will be costs, there will be additional consequences. And most of all, we will support Ukraine to win, to defend themselves, because that's the only way to stop this fundamentally. So we've seen a, essentially a weapon of mass destruction unleashed here in Ukraine on Monday night, Tuesday morning. The destruction of the dam has caused almost unimaginable damage. An entire region the size of a, almost a small country has been wiped out. Lots of people are dead, we don't know how many. The entire agricultural industry in that region, which is what the region lives from, it's their lifeblood, has been wiped out. Uh, there's major pollution, massive damage to, to the e ecological system there, the ecosystem, animals, wildlife, etc. Uh, now, again, I come back to the first point. We need to hold someone accountable for that. And it's not good enough to say, well, they blame each other and we don't really know because it doesn't take a genius to work out what's going on here. It's pretty obvious and we need to push ahead now to demonstrate unequivocally who is responsible for this. Uh, thank you again for sharing that perspective because I, I really struggle with lack of truth. Uh, and, and I remember I grew up fortunately during the collapse of former Yugoslavia and even before worldwide web and all the opportunities that we can portray things today we were very clear what it does media propaganda different political agendas outside of former yugoslavia and definitely within the country from different parties right but was very clear where aggression was starting from how everything played out and then obviously as just mentioned decades later or even you know a uh, few years later, uh, was very clear and evident what happened. Um, but if we did not get intervention, if things did not start changing, if we did not have a Dayton agreement, if we did not have a finally intervention that we were begging and hoping for, so many of us will not be here today. I would not be here today. And when we put that in perspective, um, how important it is, Peter, with the right now when we're seeing so much media manipulation, as you said, and lacking the truth, lacking integrity, lacking the stand when they're overriding the facts with political agenda or whatever agenda might be, or because of the fear or whatever might be the reasons behind and not doing the right thing. We know historically what that means, what those implications could be, right? And what those implications create um, for decades and centuries after. So as a journalist, as someone who has been in the midst of all of that, how do you make current um, events and situations making sense? And how do you, what do you advocate? What, what is your message for other journalists um, that are covering the news and covering information? Well, I mean, it, 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 is, it is. This may sound paradoxical, but it is important to give both sides. It's important to reflect the reality as rounded as possible, but you need to give context. So in this example, I think it's relevant to say, yes, Russia denies that they blew the dam up. Russia says it was Ukraine. But then you need to contextualize that and say, yes, but the evidence that tells us X, Y, Z 
Russia has been caught openly lying about ABC. And also we know that Russia has spent the last eight months systematically bombing Ukraine's infrastructure. So they've done this before, they are doing this. You know, to provide the context, not just to say, well, he said this, she said that, probably the truth somewhere in the middle, because that's the conclusion that people will draw. They'll say, oh, well, who knows? You know, you see the headline, we don't know. And they just say, well, you know, we'll never know. And this is really useless. It's not, that's not journalism. That doesn't provide a service to your audience. You know, that, that is, that's ticking a box to say, well, I'm not biased, I'm, I'm, I'm objective. And it's actually a really false, uh, false you know, it's a weak professional standard. You need to focus, as I mentioned, primarily, your, the priority of any journalism is to explain what's really happening, to explain what the truth of the matter is, what the reality is. Uh, yes, you need to show other, other perspectives and, and reflect what the Russians in this case are saying, uh, but you also need to be realistic. You know what they're like. We, you know, I've spoken to many journalists who work in Ukraine, international journalists. They're not stupid people. They're very smart. They know what Russia is. They know what the Kremlin is. They know how they operate. But they say, well, we have to give their point. Well, okay, I, I recognise that. Give their point. Share their position. But qualify it. Explain their record explain that the context of who these people are and what we know about them because uh it really isn't rocket science uh, and it's very frustrating to see this kind of uh, this fake this false equivalence between different messaging because they're, they're not the same they don't have the same value mm. That is so true. And, and I agree with you uh, when we don't have a context, when we don't also show the evidence of patterns, because we see a lot of mismatch. One thing we say, the other thing we do. Uh, and then again, aftermath and, and calculations of the risks and what occurred uh, have greater implications and things that truly, as they say, go for in history. And they're going to just be... Uh, very hard uh, pill to swallow for so many that are just really looking, obviously, for opportunities where we can not only just coexist, but truly live uh, in, in a much more uh, civil and much more regulated, peaceful world, uh, and frankly. Um, so when people bring historical events and when we see, as you said, patterns uh, we can also predict what's going on and implications also that have on economy and the rest of the country and then also whole Europe. Obviously, um, you did not grow up in Ukraine and you chose to live and be in Ukraine and you chose to be now during this time. Do you mind sharing a little bit for everyone who is not really also seeing how is this impacting Europe and how is this impacting other nations, uh, neighboring nations and nations that are also so trying to um, make a difference and impact and what's working, if you can also highlight some really positive aspects of uh, how people are coming together. Well, I mean, I think in terms of the immediate impact, uh, the, the most obvious impact probably would be the refugees. We're talking about approximately 8 million Ukrainians who flooded into the EU since uh, the invasion began in February of last year, so in, in the last 16 months. Um, around three or four have come home, but around 4,000, 4, sorry, 4 million, maybe 5 million are still living in different EU countries. So that's a massive number. That's, a, that's the biggest influx of refugees since the post-World War II era. 
in a single go. We're talking about far more than the, the, the influx of Syrian refugees about eight or nine years ago, which was such a big political issue. So that's a major factor that I'm sure has impacted communities across Europe um, and will continue to do so. That's a major physical impact. Uh, then you have also the economic impact. Uh, Ukraine is a major agricultural country. Um, it's also involved in other, it's, it's also very resource rich in other areas. It's involved in the energy trade. So we have a, a lot of destabilization of food prices, of energy prices. Uh, people's cost of living has gone up a lot across Europe. So there are a lot of different areas where people's everyday lives have been impacted by this war. Uh, and will continue to be impacted until until we have uh, a resolution to this war, until the war is over and we have peace. Um, it's it's expensive for people. It makes life more uncomfortable, and it causes issues for communities as they try to adopt and adapt to this large influx of Ukrainian refugees who are coming into their into their communities. Um, it also creates security issues because although the war is contained to Ukraine today. There's no guarantee that it will stay that way. Uh, Russia is uh, very, very fond of threatening other countries in the region in particular. Um, the, the European Union, most European countries uh, and NATO have been very supportive of Ukraine and it's provided a lot of military support, a lot of, a lot of weapons, a lot of equipment, um, everything from, from uniforms and um, medical equipment to tanks and jet planes and anti-aircraft uh, technology. So uh, there's always the danger that the war could move into the other countries. So, of course, countries that are closer to you, to Russia and Ukraine, have a security element as well, where they have to be on their guard and you never know what might happen. Uh, even Britain, even uh, Southern Europe, it would be very easy for Russia or relatively easy for Russia to launch some form of hybrid attack perhaps on their energy infrastructure, perhaps on their internet connections, perhaps on their heating systems, perhaps on their water systems. Uh, so there is a heightened security threat across the Western world as well. So the impacts are significant. I wouldn't say they're life-changing, but they are significant. But the main impact is in the way in the world, we, the kind of world we live in. Um, if Russia is successful in Ukraine, uh, it will go further. And other countries will repeat Russia's experience primarily China, but not exclusively, perhaps Iran, perhaps other countries in the Middle East, perhaps other countries in the Far East, perhaps countries in Africa. Uh, we will live in a very different world. If Russia is able to change the borders of Europe by force, if Russia is able to annex and take a territory from a neighboring country by force, and if that is accepted by the international community, then other countries will learn that lesson and will repeat that lesson and will say, well, everything's now changed. We haven't seen that since before World War II. No one's done that successfully. Uh, now we're talking about a scenario where the world will be a very different place and a far more dangerous place. What I think you would see in that, in, in that if that happens, you would see a big increase in military spending across the board. Now, when countries spend money on military, they can't spend it on other things like education and healthcare and support for communities. Um, they would then also, there would also be a major push for nuclear weapons. A lot of countries around the world would suddenly say, well, we saw what happened to Ukraine, who gave, who surrendered its nuclear arsenal in, 19, in the 1990s. We're not going to have that happen to us. We need to have nuclear weapons. So you'll see 
an arms race, a militarization, and a massive push for nuclear weapons and massive nuclear proliferation around the world. Um, and we live in a much more dangerous environment, in a much more dangerous place. Uh, borders would, of course, be much more strictly controlled. Travel would be restricted, etc. So it would be it would be a darker a darker world to live in, I believe. Uh, and it would not just be the immediate threat, but it would be broad terms. The way that the way that the world would the security environment would be so much more tense. We would all we would all feel it. I think, unfortunately, that you are very much so right. And I also feel like we should have very strong sense of urgency right now, because as you pointed out, we don't have to wait to see other implications before we do something smarter, more effective, more better, or to do the right thing that needs to be done. And with that in mind, what would you, what would be your message to the leaders that are on the fence or they're not sure because we're having in parallel so many other issues going on and disasters and, 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 and needs, right? But that I feel like always when we do come together, we're not only much stronger, but much wiser in terms of making decisions and then also selecting right choices and um, creating different outcomes. Any recommendations on that? Well, no, the, the, the short answer is they need to do everything to make Ukraine win. Um, there is no middle ground. Uh, when, when the war began, there was a lot of talk of like, oh, well, can we not find a compromise? Can we not find a, a way of saving face for Putin? Um, he doesn't want to save his face. He doesn't want to have a compromise. He wants to continue. His goal is to destroy Ukraine as a state. His goal is to eradicate Ukraine as a state to wipe it off the face of the earth, but that's not his end goal. His end goal is to end the post-1991 world order. He wants a different world. He wants the world that I just spoke about, a world of militarization, a world of closed borders and a world of competing superpowers and spheres of influence. He's pushing for that. Ukraine is part of that. Uh, if he is allowed to have a compromise agreement in Ukraine, if, for example, the international community said, look, Ukraine, we're very sorry, but you're going to have to give up part of your country in order to have peace. That's the deal. And if you don't like it, well, we're sorry, but that's the deal. If that were to happen, then Russia would say, thank you very much. Good job. The war was a success. And the war would begin again in between you know, a year to three years time. The war would begin again and Russia would go further and would take more land. Etc. They would not. They would consider that to be a big success, and that would be a green light to continue. The only way to end this is through Ukrainian defeating Russia, uh, which sounded very, very fantastical two years ago. If you'd said that, but what we've seen over the last year, it now looks realistic. Uh, the Russian military is far, far weaker than we could possibly have imagined. Uh, the Ukrainian military is far, far stronger than we dared believe. Uh, Ukraine has scored a number of very significant victories over Russia in the last year, at 16 months. Um, so the only thing they're missing now is the tools to finish this job. They need to have the weapons to defeat Russia and to end this. And if they don't get that, this will continue and it will get worse and worse and worse. And other countries will eventually be dragged into it. And then when people said it's just Ukraine, then they'll say, well, it's just Ukraine and Moldova. It's just Ukraine and Moldova and the Baltic states. It's just Poland, and we will have the same process going on 
for another five years, another 10 years, maybe 20 years. It's hard to say, but it will certainly, the one thing we can say is the situation will continue to deteriorate significantly until it's stopped. And the best and quickest way to stop it is here in Ukraine. And the only way to do that is militarily. So basically the message in short would be stop dawdling around, stop procrastinating. Uh, let's end these, this hesitancy. Let's end this, this um, reluctance and just get on with it. Give Ukraine all the weapons they need. Give them fighter jets, give them more tanks, give them long range rockets uh, and they will finish the job. I love it specifically again um, because they're being attacked and how many times over and over and I, as you said how is going to then change the landscape of the world and everything else if we don't do it so again I really appreciate your voice and sharing your perspective and understanding a little bit more for everybody that is watching and listening why we have to have a sense of urgency and for everyone Peter obviously you did not grow up initially in Ukraine you immigrated to Ukraine is that correct yeah you can say that yeah and you fell in love with people, with culture, and you found a new home. Do you mind highlighting what it means to be part of Ukrainian culture and what it's, what people don't see it and how different that is uh, from Russian mentality? Because a lot of times people label, oh, it's the same language and it's same culture. And we know very well that it's not. So do you mind highlighting what is to be Ukrainian, live in Ukraine, and what it means uh, about what is the culture all about? Um, well, I, I can't say what is what is to be Ukrainian because I'm not, I'm British, but I can certainly share my experiences. And I, I, I came to Ukraine around 25 years ago uh, with the British government and, and on, on a one-year contract and uh, was so captivated by the country that I never left, essentially, I'm still here. Um, it is an amazing place. Uh, it's a very, it's a very big country. Um, it's the largest country totally in Europe. It's slightly bigger than France, so it's a vast area territorially, um, and it's very, very unknown. Uh, that's clear. You know, I don't, there's, there's no denying that it's a very unknown place. That's, that's not an accident. Uh, Ukraine is actually uh, the scene of the longest running liberation struggle, independence struggle in European history. The Ukrainians have been struggling for their own state for hundreds of years. Um, in, the, in the 18th century, the, the French, the great French thinker Voltaire wrote that Ukraine has always driven, has always uh, sought liberty, has always tried to achieve liberty. This was, this was almost 300 years ago this was written. You know, so this is a long, long running epic uh, of European history, which has been very successfully suppressed by the Russians. You know, Russia, in many ways, is, is quite a backward country. Technologically, it's very backward. Politically, it's very backward. Um, you could argue in some ways socially it's very backward. But in the sphere of disinformation, I would argue that Russia is the world leader, is the best country in the world in spinning a web of, of deceit, in spinning, spinning uh, disinformation and in, in promoting alternative false narratives. Uh, and the one area where we see that most of all is Ukraine. They've been extremely successful for, for hundreds of years in suppressing the idea of Ukrainian identity. So most people outside Ukraine have no idea that it really exists. Now they are learning over the last couple of years 
But for the long time, certainly since I've been here, when I first arrived, people had very little idea that it was such a country. They certainly had no idea that it was such a big country and such an important country. Um, they had very little understanding of what Ukraine was. And they very often, as you mentioned, thought, well, Ukraine is Russia, basically, right? It's part of Russia, isn't it? It's basically the same thing, isn't it? Um, this, was a this was an idea that was very actively promoted by Russia for a long, long time. Um, but actually, Ukraine's history has always been, as say, there's a struggle for liberation that's gone on for hundreds of years. It also has a very democratic tradition dating back to the times of the Cossacks, which is the, the late Middle Ages. It was a kind of, the word Cossack means free man. Uh, these were people who fled slavery in Russia and Poland, um, the kingdoms of, of the time, the nearby kingdoms, and lived as quite sort of frontiersmen, sort of a cowboy existence, uh, and had quite a democratic system in many respects. Um, the first, one of the first written constitutions in the world, which sought to separate uh, church and state and many of the ideas that now are quite universal or, or broadly embraced by the Western world was, was written in Ukraine by a Ukrainian Cossack leader, for example. So it's a fascinating story of Ukraine's long story of trying to become free, trying to become a nation. Uh, it went through various eras and a lot of Russification uh, under the czars, uh, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, these were great oppressors of Ukraine, as it were. Um, then under the Soviets, under Stalin, Stalin committed a, a massive uh, forced famine, an engineered famine in Ukraine to try and crush Ukrainian identity. Ukraine declared independence at the beginning of the 20th century during the Russian Revolution and had a brief period of, of statehood that was recognized by around half of Europe. But then the Soviets were able to reestablish control over Ukraine and Stalin sought to essentially starve Ukraine into submission and they killed between maybe four to six million Ukrainians in their own homes in one of the most um, remarkable uh, acts, atrocities ever committed in European history and again very few people know about this internationally now again some more are learning about it but it's still quite limited so these are all the this is the backstory to what we're seeing today and this process has been ongoing since I arrived when I arrived, it was the, the early years after the Soviet Union, and the whole nation-building process was really just getting going again because the Soviets had been very successful in Russifying everything. Uh, Russification had been very deeply uh, uh, pursued throughout Ukrainian society, and they were just finding their feet again and rediscovering the past. I personally saw how people in Ukraine were rediscovering the genocide of the Stalin era. A lot of them didn't know much about it. They started to learn about it. Now my children learn about it at school and they know about it very well. But in, in the, you know, the generation before, many of them only vaguely knew about it because of sort of whispered stories they might have heard from their grandparents or their you know, family in the, in the countryside. Um, so Ukraine has been moving towards this on this sort of on this track towards nation building since the 1990s. Uh, they gained independence in the 1990s, but I would say they weren't genuinely independent and sovereign. They were still very, very much under Russian control and influence. Um, as they've moved further away from Russia, as they've become more self-confident, as they've become stronger as a nation, and, as, and crucially, as they've embraced democracy and looked to Europe, Russian aggression has become more and more open. So we see the 2004 Orange Revolution uh, and Russia essentially trying to intervene in that, but failing. And then after that, in 2014, with the Euromaidan revolution, again, the re revolution was successful. The Ukrainian people defended their democracy. Russia responded by invading Crimea and invading East Ukraine. 
When that failed to prevent Ukraine from continuing its, its route towards Europe, well, we then arrived at February 2022 in the current war. So Russia has been consistently opposed to Ukraine developing as a separate and genuinely independent nation, uh, and especially as you, opposed to Ukraine developing as a democratic European nation, uh, and has become increasingly violent in its opposition. Uh, but Ukraine has continued. Ukraine has moved along that road. So that's been uh, an incredible process to observe, the fact that Ukraine is becoming a European democracy, uh, a major player in European politics, which is, I think, it, it will be in, in the decades to come. Um, and watching, from my point of view as a foreigner, to see Ukrainians grow in confidence about who they are and who the, what their country is all about. Mm. Thank you for giving us that amazing overview, because, again, uh, when we learn more, uh, when we know more, we can do better. And I hope uh, with everybody watching and listening that everybody can take a better actions, better choices, better decisions, and also better sure understanding how we all play the role of, of doing right and doing something for greater good or or ignoring and waiting till we are directly affected and oftentimes when that happens you and i know very well what that means it's too late uh so peter it was absolute pleasure to have you on the legacy leader show and share yeah, such a a profound perspective uh, of what's going on in the country and why we need to take a stand. And in closing, where people can find you and if they want to get in touch with you or learn more about your work um, so that they can stay informed. Uh, well, I would I would rec I would advise them to follow the the Atlantic Council's Ukraine Alert blog. Uh, which is which is what I what I edit, what I run, and we we publish there every week a number of stories, the latest analysis and, and commentary on events in Ukraine, um, and, and just follow Ukraine in the news. And I think it's a, I think it's it's a hugely important topic for the whole world, and I hope that people will remain focused on it, will remain, will will continue to take an interest in it, uh, what's happening here, and, and to understand that Ukraine is fighting to be free, to be a genuinely free European nation. I think that's something that I would hope most people could support. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.